welcome to the GoTo Podcast. Each episode covers the brightest and boldest ideas from the world's leading experts in software development. Tune in for practical lessons, compelling theories, and plenty of inspiration. GoTo gathers the brightest minds in the software community to help developers tackle projects today, plan for tomorrow, and create a better future. Stay up to date with the latest in tech through GoTo's top-rated events held online and in-person in cities like Amsterdam, London, Copenhagen, and Chicago, and by subscribing to the GoTo Conference's YouTube channel, where you can find thousands more high-quality dev talks. Learn more at gotopia.tech. Welcome to GoTo Unscripted. My name is John Davis, um, and I've got my colleague here, Lars. We'll go through a quick introductions, Lars. Yes, thank you. Uh, my name is Lars Hupel, and I work at, uh, as a chief evangelist in a German company called GND, Gieseke and Devrient. It's a bit hard to pronounce, so we always say GND. <laughs> and um, the company works in, broadly speaking, uh, payments, digital infrastructure, security. Um, and I'm uh, evangelist in the section for digital currency. Excellent. Um, as I said, my name is John Davis. I'm CTO, one of the co-founders of a company called Velo. Uh, Valor Payments, um, where we've stayed very clear of uh, cryptocurrencies, um, hopefully, well, I'll explain for obvious reasons, but um, we do traditional payments in the uh, United States, uh, domestic, cross-border, Europe, UK. Um, we've just launched a product in the UK for open banking, which we should be rolling out in Europe as well. Um, and as I said, very much traditional um, Leading edge payments, but uh, outside of the crypto side. So, um, what what does an evangelist do? Are you evangelizing your your product, or are you evangelizing the technology behind it? <laughs> well, it, I, I guess I'm explaining things. <laughs> that's that's the general idea, and uh, it's not just about the product itself, but um, also generally speaking, the the space that we're working in, which is central bank digital currencies, or CBDC for short which um, also has nothing to do with cryptocurrencies. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> so um, central banks uh, are investigating kind of bringing the physical cash into the digital world so that you can have a payment instrument that works both online and offline, is backed by the central bank, guaranteed by the government, and so on and so on. And uh, this is uh, kind of a, a, a continuation of our, one of our core businesses, which GND is a cash company, so we are printing cash, we are uh, offering cash management solutions, and now we're also getting into this um, CBDC space uh, for a long time now, talking with central banks around the world. And yeah, so one of the things that I do is explain our product that we're developing, a solution for central bank digital currency, but also more broadly going to conferences like go to Amsterdam and explaining what what the hell digital cash is in the first place, why you should care, uh, why it's interesting from a technology perspective, and also try to kind of bring both the economic point of view and the technical point of view together and, and see how they align. I really like the idea of printing cash. Can I have a sort of testing rig at my house? <laughs> no, they, I, I, like, they don't even let me in, uh, near the printing machines. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, I mean, this is predominantly Java um, as a conference. I'm guessing your background, like mine, is, is Java. Uh, 
quite a while ago, yes. Um, but uh, funnily enough, at some point, I don't even program that much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, 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 I'm an engineer at heart. Yeah. But uh, uh, nowadays, I just do workshops mostly. Uh, but I do have a Java and also Scala background. So I've been doing open source Scala for about 10 years. Oh, cool. Okay. So that's, that's been a while. <laughs> Yeah, I, it, it's interesting to see where the languages fit in. I was uh, one of my talks uh, a couple of days ago um, was on uh, processing astronomical data, and one of the audience asked, you know, why are you using Java for this? It's um, Java is it's still the predominant language, I think, for for this sort of back end, for, certainly for people in this conference. But I'm curious as to um, in in your world, is, is do you still see Java as the the strongest? Um, language people people aren't moving in or and, and Scala obviously it sits on the JVM but uh, do you not see any other languages I think from my perspective which was also a bit surprising to me because I always thought of the financial world as being quite conservative is that uh, the language stops mattering so much when you uh, containerize all your applications so um, we're building our product um, cloud native. So it's everything is Dockerized. We have some components that are uh, written in, in Go. We have some components that are written in Java. Um, we have client side things as well. But we thought that we would need to go to the uh, banks and explain to them what Docker is and how mm -hmm. to run it. But it turns out they already have Kubernetes yeah. running. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> to some extent, the language doesn't actually matter anymore yeah, because you give them a container registry and then they can pull <clears> that. And I mean, obviously, it's not the end of the story. They still need to write the integration and so on. And there, these ISO standards are king, right? Mm -hmm. So you need to speak, be speaking those ISO message formats or maybe even some older formats. Mm -hmm. uh, and and they're the implementation language. I mean, we, we're not touching their code, they're not touching our code, but they somehow need to speak with each other. That is one of the advantages, obviously, of the sort of microservices world. Yeah. One of the, one of the do you, and just touching on the microservices, I mean, have you guys gone for the several hundred microservices or a mm. half a dozen? No, it's more on a half a dozen side, <laughs> yeah. So we have the, we have the um, kind of a, a unique uh, a problem, well, it's not actually unique, but like it's a rare problem to solve, which is that our components run in different organizations. So we have components that are running in central banks. We have components that are running at commercial banks. We are, have components that are running at any kind of payment service providers. And then uh, they have all their own ideas of how to run um, you know, cloud native code, microservices. Uh, so like the, the thing that we're trying to solve here is also interconnect between those different the different groups of services, let me say. And while there are technically speaking only a handful of, of services, of different types of services, you must imagine that they're running replicated in many different banks mm -hmm. and they all need to talk to each other and they all need to have a different Versioning, versioning strategy, maybe some banks would be eager to deploy the newest version right away because they're a modern digital first bank or some others are prefer to have like the, the good version, the good old version from a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, I, I think in, in terms of implementation, it's more on the side of half a dozen, but in terms of actual deployment, it, then it's probably more on the hundreds. So did you get into ISO 2002 and all? Uh, the, the, this is a kind of a trick question because yes, we did get into it and we do have uh, a, a few people working in our team from the payments world. But as I've been told, I'm not an expert in that, as I've been told, there's no one way to do ISO 222 oh, no, no. Uh, and they all have their own different dialects. 
So uh, right, basically what we have to do is individual with each player in the market, we have to sit down and say, what parts of ISO do you implement? What parts of interest of you? And then we're going to have to kind of customize uh, our solution to deal with that specifically and also possibly it's, in a dialect. It, yeah. It's horribly hard. It's, it's by definition the standard for standards. Yes. And, and no one bank or country or anything follows it. So yeah. it's... Uh, makes life incredibly difficult yep. and it doesn't even need to be an XML it can be in, in JSON it can be anything so yeah everyone says oh you've got ISO 2022 we can hook into it but it, it never works that way yeah the other problem that we're facing is that many of the existing messaging formats are not really designed with a token based system in mind so you're typically dealing with account numbers and like transfer from one account to another account and then the events that are kind of originating from, from that. And we uh, use, or not just we, but it's generally an idea inside CBDC that you have direct transfer of value. So when I want to make a transfer to your wallet that's a different bank, my bank would take this token from my wallet and directly post it over HTTP to your bank mm -hmm. and then they would immediately have the value. There's no additional settlement step involved or anything like that. So for that we actually have our own messaging protocol which is based on JSON and REST and what all the cool kids are doing. Uh, and, and for that we don't actually need to integrate with, with ISO. It's just that when you have business cases like I want to convert from deposit money to CBDC then you have to speak that language. But if you're in our nice little newly designed almost greenfield system then we can just do whatever fits best for the purpose. So what happens then if you meet another cool kid company in France for example who's got their own cool technology and you now want to integrate and do a, um, a transfer with them? So presumably yep. you've got to go back out to international standards. Yes, yes, yes very much so and we see that in some countries um, uh, in the African market, which are very advanced in those kind of interconnect between different payment rails. So we have been running a pilot project in Ghana and uh, they have mobile money. Uh, so to explain that maybe for, for, for the audience, uh, mobile money is basically prepaid balance on a SIM card that you can text each other. So if I have 20 euro on my prepaid SIM card, I can text you 10 and then you can use it for airtime or you can just text something else. And it's, it's very popular for, for buying groceries and for like just you know doing payments, generally speaking. And Ghana has a regulation that allows you to text prepaid balance to a bank account and vice versa, which I believe was very hard to implement initially, but now they have a, a, a really nice working system where you have um, banking cards, bank accounts, uh, payment service providers, mobile money, uh, credit cards and so on. They are all integrating seamlessly and it's going to a national switch infrastructure, which you know, um, works fairly well. Mm -hmm. um, it's still not in t exactly instant, so you need to wait for like half a day for some of those payments to settle, but it's a lot better than what they had before, and it's a lot better than what we have sometimes here in Europe. So um, basically, we are then also reliant on these existing stamps in the country, and um, I'm not sure what they're using there in Ghana, but I'm fairly sure that this also has to be country-specific to some right. extent. Yeah. So a couple of questions. Is, is that based on or similar to M-Pesa? And uh, M-Pesa is like the original. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's based um, on the same... Yeah, yeah, yeah. M-Pesa is from Kenya, I think. Kenya, yeah. And, yeah. Tanzania. Um, and I, I think they were the first ones to do yeah. that. But now basically every sub-Saharan African country has that sort of thing. And um, they're all called differently, I think. But uh, it's the general idea, yeah. yeah. Okay. 
So I was going to ask then about the security of SMS. It's not particularly the most secure technology, but then it's based on, on M-Pesa, I'm familiar with that. Yes, yes. So um, we looked at some of the fraud numbers and uh, um, the, the, the fraud that's happening most in these cases is like the typical social engineering fraud. So it's not so much the technical fraud because it's much easier to call someone and say, hi, I'm XY, you're still yeah. owing me this amount of money even though you're not XY, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So that's uh, the, the, the largest amount of fraud. It's like, like, it's like here, the, the, the shock calls yeah. or the I'm your... Uh, I'm uh, your I'm bank. Like, yeah, yeah, something yeah, yeah. like that. <laughs> I'm a police officer yeah. and so on, yeah. So uh, going back to the European side, uh, you talked about making a, a payment from, from you to me. I, like, I prefer that way. Um, what about the security of what you're, you're putting in my name, you're putting in presumably my bank details, bank details in Europe for, for those uh, in, in, in the US are, are fairly open. Uh, when we send an invoice, we put the bank details, etc. So that, that's not secret as, it, as, as much as it is in the States. But under GDPR, you're still sending um, personally identifiable, uh, identifiable data. So how do, you, how do you manage the security side on, on this in terms of and data privacy? Yeah, so um, as has just been published from the European Commission mm. on, on their investigation Digital Euro, privacy is very high on the list. Yet KYC is also a, a requirement. And, and KYC, which means know your customer, means that um, commercial banks that are going into a uh, uh, relationship with a client, so if I'm opening a bank account at a, at a commercial bank, um, they will need to collect my personal data just because they're required by law to do that. Um, and how we designed our solution in such a way that this KYC data stays local within the commercial bank. So if I want to make an outgoing payment, my bank is responsible for authenticating me and they're probably doing that with their existing user management systems. Mm -hmm. So we have a demo implementation based on Keycloak, but yeah. <laughs> the banks are not going to use Keycloak, <laughs> plain and simple. No. <laughs> <laughs> and they have also PSD2 and so on. So all of that data stays local. And um, the, as I mentioned already, the token transfer uh, goes then directly between the, the banks themselves, so to the target wallet. And um, the, the receiving bank will not learn about my KYC data because it's kept local. Now, the banks still have some kind of fraud detection systems, they have some kind of money laundering detection systems and so on. So if they find some issues, they would find it locally within their data and then you have additional legislation that tells banks, okay, if you have this suspicion, this reasonable suspicion, you need to you know, report it to someone and that's what they can do. Right. Um, but we've tried to design it in such a way that the token itself has no personal identifying information whatsoever and everything stays between you and your bank unless you're trying to commit a crime, in which case they would report it. So presumably uh, it's going through the traditional, as you said, anti-fraud, anti-money laundering, anti-terrorism, exactly. etc. Exactly. So it's going through yep. the same. Yeah, so we're, we're trying to um, put kind of an account-based view on these tokens because banks know how to deal with account based systems. They know how to detect if an account is receiving unusually large amounts of, of money uh, and we're not telling them, you know, you need to rewrite this entire system to be based on tokens or to detect like unusual token flows, but instead we're kind of emitting events that they can then feed into their existing systems and then also can match it with their normal traditional accounts. So this effectively, uh, from what you're saying, playing devil's advocate here, is no different from transferring euros from one account to another because you're going through the, the same 
you've got the KYC, you've got the assumption that both sender and receiver have been through KYC, therefore if you're sending money and the other one is, has an account, therefore they've been through KYC at the, the destination bank. Um, everyone has to go through the same anti-fraud, anti-money laundering, uh, yep. counter-terrorism, etc. Um, what's the difference then with the central bank um, mechanism as opposed to through traditional? Yeah, that's a, that's a fairly good question. <laughs> we get that asked a lot because if you only had online payments between uh, wallets held at banks, there would be no material difference. You, you mean uh, UK has instant payments between banks, uh, uh, the Eurozone has instant payments between banks, so that's pretty that's much every problem, country. Yeah. 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 Um, Maybe except for the US, but the US, <laughs> US is a, yeah. yeah. Okay. So what 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 CBDC offers as uh, an additional value is first of all um, offline payments. So you can kind of download your tokens onto a wallet that you're physically carrying with you, which we call a bearer wallet because mm -hmm. it's like you're bearing it, you're carrying it around mm -hmm. with you, and that's the same type of token. And there's no need for like you know kind of settlement. You don't need to ask the central bank if this is a valid token and, and, and whatnot. So I could um, download some of those tokens from my bank wallet onto my bearer wallet and then I could transact with you offline. Um, and you could also have, so that's the second point, you could also have um, non-banks offering these kinds of wallet services, which you can do because CBDC is a liability of the central bank. So you don't need to be fully regulated like a bank because then you have like uh, deposit requirements, insurance requirements, and so on. And with CBDC, that just you don't need that because it's like cash; it's immediately guaranteed by a central bank. So you can have these seamless new use cases online, offline. But you can also have new use cases enabled by payment service providers who can now operate much more flexibly than they could have previously done. Need um, another point for for mobile money. Mobile money is backed by deposits. So every mobile money operator, like Vodafone or MTN or whoever in, in the African area, uh, needs to have one or more deposit accounts and then they need to have regulation like, don't keep more than 20% of your funds in one account because mm -hmm. what if one of those banks goes bust and so on. And they could dramatically simplify that if they got access to central bank money, which is pretty much guaranteed. So there's no way for, for anyone going bust in that. And that just gives you a whole lot of more flexibility in how you conduct yourself. And so, okay, trying to find some other similarities. Stored valued cards, for example. So you mentioned some of the mobile phone companies. In yes. some cases, they offer you know, the ability to pay using your, your, your phone account. It goes onto your bill. Not dissimilar, again, from Amazon or Apple, I think now. Um, again, what, what would be the advantages? Uh, so that's also true. We've had offline payments for a while. Uh, what we haven't had so far is um, consecutive offline payments. So I pay you offline and then you turn around and pay someone else offline. That doesn't work right now. There was even for the stored value cards that we had, uh, for example, the Geldkarte in, in Germany, I've heard that something like that existed in the Netherlands as well uh, at some point. Um, that only allowed for customer to merchant transactions and the merchant had to wait for, I don't know, end of day for the money to arrive in the bank account. Um, and with CBDC, the idea is that you can have peer-to-peer -peer offline payments, you can have uh, um, person to merchant to delivery, something like that. Mm -hmm. So in, in, in Ghana, we found that we, there were actually a lot of merchant to merchant transactions because they were quite long merchant to merchant chains and it's instantly settled. So they don't need to wait for one or two days for this transaction to clear. 
So twisting the conversation, or moving the conversation slightly, um, I was asked on, the, on this panel yesterday, you, you and I sort of shared a seat, um, or shared the, the, the panel, yes. The panel, yeah, <laughs> not a seat. Nobody shares my seat. Um, um, when, I, when I came to that, I was invited and I sort of looked, oh God, this is gonna be a whole bunch of cryptocurrency things. And, and as we went through the introductions, I thought, oh, okay, they're not crypto, he's not crypto. Uh, you know, you and I sat next to each other and, and oh, they're not crypto. So it, it, it looks as if we're all sort of, uh, it, it turned out pretty much the whole panel, um, interestingly, was relatively agreed in terms of where we sit with this. Do you have challenges uh, with what you're doing with people assuming that it's because it's not fiat currency, as in I mean, the differentiating from just pure cash and, and money in a bank account, but um, do you have people getting confused with cryptocurrencies and where they sit because obviously if you're trying to promote something new everyone's going oh it's it's another one of these you know you get rich quick things of course yeah it happens all the time uh, and we, we get that sort of from from multiple sides at the same time so um, to some extent when you talk about digital currency that word has been associated now with cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. So exactly. we have to, I have to explain as evangelist that it's not the same thing and it's orthogonal to blockchain so you can do digital currency backed by whatever, on whatever platform, on database, on blockchain. Mm -hmm. You can have it backed by deposits, you can have it something like a stable coin, so there's all sorts of, of different design choices. And that makes it very hard to, to, to um, give like a good narrative about it. So what we always start with is, it's central bank money. So it's money that you already know, it's just in a different form. And we can choose to run that on DLT if there's a requirement to do so, but we can also choose to run it on databases because it's already a centralized system. It's yeah. already the central bank doing that. Um, and from the other side, from the, let's, let's say the cryptocurrency enthusiasts, there's very often the notion that um, central banks should do less rather than more. So they're not convinced that if the central bank is digitizing currency that they have any material uh, advantage because they already have Bitcoin, they already have stable coins, so they can also already transact seamlessly digitally, um, maybe with sort of less stringent KYC rules and so on, but uh, they and don't see any... Totally not mercy. <laughs> half an hour to get your transaction through. Except, exactly. Yeah. So, so, so basically, it's, uh, we're tr and, trying and very also, carefully to position ourselves uh, in that... And, and you also can't, if, if you were transferring money through your yeah. phone, we had no network with a central bank currency, you can do that. Whereas yes. with a distributed ledger, obviously you need exactly, exactly. internet yeah. access, etc. Yeah, because what we're doing is we're, we're having, you're building a trusted system where all the wallets that are participating in the system are somehow authenticated, they're somehow regulated. So um, when I were to give you Bitcoin offline, you had no reason to trust no, me no, that this is actually a valid Bitcoin. <laughs> but if I'm, if I'm using my official wallet, sending your official wallet yeah. some some. Uh, yeah, CBC, just like a passport, that, you can verify the exactly, signature and yeah, exactly right. And and, uh, and and this is uh, this is a challenge, right? Um, we also hear a lot that uh, that offline, you know, it's not really a big issue. Why would you need it? Because like we have five G everywhere, and the answer is no, you don't. No, no, you don't. Absolutely no. not. No. <laughs> you go out into the sticks and you try and try to pay for something. It's exactly. A, yeah. Yeah. As I found out in Germany when I was cycling in the um, in the Black Forest, uh, it's. Right, to pay for your cake and a beer. Yeah, um, you don't even have 3G. You, may, you might have that. 2G if you're no, lucky. Cash. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you're, you're competing with, with mobile money or is this, this different? Um, yeah, we're not exactly trying to compete 
with existing uh, payment rails. So we're not trying to compete with cash. We're not trying to compete with deposits. Uh, and also ECB has made it abundantly clear that they don't want cash to go away. They don't want banks to go away. So what we, we see CBDC is as, first of all, more choice for mm -hmm. the consumer. So giving them one more option to pay, maybe in situations where they were not able to pay before. And then also as a second point, to serve as a foundation for different payment rails to become more efficient. Um, so, uh, uh, for example, if you have payment service providers today that have to partner with an existing bank and have very strict collateral requirements and then have to wait for the RTGS to clear certain transactions and then it maybe goes through multiple different chains of intermediaries, uh, this could be made a lot less friction yeah. when using an instrument that is directly backed by the central bank and is like immediately settled. So, um, while in many situations there's no actual user experience difference if I'm paying with an existing car, there might be in the back end less cost, less turnaround time, and that in turn also means that I have to pay less at the shop because if, the, if yeah, all so of that is you're, more you're giving both the merchant, the consumer, and exactly. all the parties the choice, exactly. which, is, which is what we have today. You can pay yeah. with cash, you can pay with your, your phone, you can pay with your credit card, your debit card, your um, yes. Amex. Or, yes. Yeah. Okay. So it's just basically you're, you're complementing all the others. Exactly, yeah. Okay, that's pretty cool. Well, Lars, um, that's great. Thanks, thanks very much for, uh, uh, hopefully everyone's learned you know, quite a lot. Yeah. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Wow, you're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the GoTo Podcast. Head over to gotopia.tech to discover lots more content from the brightest minds in software development. Mm -hmm.